there's not a day that goes by that I'm not uh, experiencing two things, and that is the, the the joy of the Lord. I, in all of life's comings and goings and ups and downs, trials and challenges, uh, His presence in my life, the, the knowledge of Him as my Lord and risen Savior, is uh, the joy of my life. He is the anchor of my soul. And so, let come what may, I, I have him as my refuge, and I rejoice in that. Every day, my heart is calm, my heart is at, at peace, and uh, my mind is clear, and because of him. Not because I'm so smart, not because I'm so gifted, not because I'm so well-credentialed, not because of anything inherent within me, but because of Jesus Christ. He is my reward. He is my everything. And I also experience a great deal of grief. And you can do both. Um, children have a hard time doing both, but adults can. I, I've learned that I can be an adult and experience both the joy of the Lord and the delight that I feel in knowing Him and feel the grief of looking around at me uh, not only at a world that is an utter rebellion to the knowledge of its creator, but a church that is given over to the prevailing culture. And so you really can't tell any difference between the culture and the church. Uh, the late great uh, theologian John Gerstner, uh, in the final uh, days of his life, asked the question, when the Lord returns... Will he find faith in the world? And then he answered his own question saying, No, he won't. And to the degree that the church is in the world, he won't find faith there either. And part of the problem is, is that we don't take Jesus seriously. We take him as kind of a, a package deal. A package deal that it, you sign up for in order to make sure that your ticket is good to get to heaven. And But beyond that, his teaching really doesn't have a dramatic impact on one's life. And so I see daily uh, not only that the average Christian is a very shallow person. Quite frankly, now there are important exceptions to that. There are some very fine, mature um, people. They're not, by the way, necessarily those who are, who are speaking at conferences or writing best-selling books and uh, all the popular names in the uh, uh, evangelical world. They're just people living their lives, serving the Lord with a pure heart, a whole heart, um, clinging to his gospel, and um, caring for others loving others, loving their families. There's some beautiful Christian people out there. But they're, the majority of, of American Christians are uh, really a pretty shallow bunch. And, and, and the culture uh, encourages that. And the culture encourages shallow Christianity because uh, it's, it's not important to, to be anything but shallow. Uh, what's important is that we have enough faith to be able to rationalize and justify and minimize the effects of the culture upon us. 
and to pursue all the things that uh, the weaknesses and the uh, character uh, defects of the Western culture and still call ourselves a Christian. And I think there's something intuitive in many Christians that understands that if they were to begin to take Jesus seriously and to begin to read the scriptures under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that they would soon have to come to grips with their own mindset. They'd have to come to grips with their own lifestyle and realize that it is something less than reflective of the kingdom of God. And so it is important then to pause from time to time and consider these things. Um, there's a, an important text in Timothy that tells us that the Lord knows those who are his and let those who name his name depart from iniquity. Now, so this is not a fire and brimstone message but it is an um, encouragement that we have some work to do. It's very important that we understand that there is a propensity out there to um, assume that all's well as long as we know we're going to heaven. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the world's on fire. Uh, humanity is getting more decadent. Uh, things are getting worse, not better. Um, injustice and, and, and evil and self-interest and self-centeredness, um, men and women chasing power uh, instead of service. Uh, That's pretty, pretty dominant. And, and by the way, I'm just talking about the church. <laughs> you thought I was talking about the world, didn't you? Well, uh, those lines have blurred, beloved. This morning, I um, received a um, tweet on my Twitter account from Julie Royce uh, talking about some questions she had for John MacArthur, and she was asking these questions of a fellow by the name of Josh Busey, B-U-I-C-E, I think his last name is. He's a public figure on, on Twitter, and he's a... Claimed, he says that he's a follower of Christ, a husband, dad, pastor, blogger, founder, and president of G3 Ministries. And uh, he says, uh, he refers in a little byline here, Semper Reformanda. Semper Reformanda. That is the Latin word for always reforming. Always reforming. That's a big power phrase that came, comes out of uh, the Reformation. Semper Reformanda. Uh, and the thought behind it is wonderful. The thought behind it is great, that the church should always be reforming. The problem is, it's a slogan. And I don't know, Joss, I never met him. It could be that he uh, uh, subscribes to that thoroughly and faithfully, and I hope that's the case. But most of the men and women that I know who throw around slogans like Semper Reformanda, are really just sloganeers. They're not interested in um, genuine reformation. They're interested in the reformation. What I mean by that is that they're interested in idealizing that 
revival that began in 1517 with Luther, Luther um, nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. And that ha went on for another 50 or 75 years. And ultimately, quite frankly, and I say this with all dear respect, became a failed revolution in as much that ultimately the Reformation had, the fires of the Reformation were quenched by the need to comply with the um, church-state system. And so you've heard me say that before. It's just a simple historic fact. I mean, you can look it up. You can see that within 100 years after the Reformation, what we had was a lot of dead orthodoxy. We had recaptured the um, essence of the gospel, but the work of the Spirit had been quenched as the Reformation came back under the um, uh, control of the civil authorities in the church state system. Uh, and those who continued to truly reform themselves under a New Testament paradigm uh, suddenly found themselves being persecuted, not only by the Catholics, but by the Protestant authorities. And so all, all the Reformation did for them was create one more civil authority to uh, persecute them. And I mean persecute them. From the time of the 1600s through the late 1700s, untold thousands of New Testament believers without power, without influence, who dwelled together in homes and fields and uh, mountains, uh, in small groups, larger groups, um, were persecuted horribly some of them in mass executions, mass burnings. They were beheaded. They were drowned. Some of the Anglican churches used to put these precious believers into cages and hang them on the outside of their cathedrals. These are, the, these are the untold stories of the Reformation. So when Josh says Semper Reformanda, I hope he really means it. And if he really means it, then what he's really saying is that he is willing, and please hear me now, he is willing to set aside his theological system on a regular basis and put it under the bright light of Scripture to determine whether or not it is in fact of God. From the time of the Reformation until the 1800s, we had th three or four major theological systems uh, imported from Europe. And that was, of course, Lutheranism, uh, Presbyterianism and the Reformed Baptists and um, Methodism. 
And all of those were traditions that carried a um, a form of the gospel, a version of the gospel that had to have been adapted to fit the church-state system. And so you weren't hearing the full gospel. You weren't hearing the whole counsel of God. What you were hearing was a version of the gospel that had been adapted to a church-state system. Uh, and so it really... Now, were people saved under those those preaching? Yes, yes. God God still uses whom He will. Uh, but what's happened since then is that we've had to come to grips with the fact that let every man be a liar, and God still is true, and that Scripture still uh, calls us to examine ourselves to to question and to look at whether or not our theology is really of the Spirit or more in line with the Spirit of this world. So I hope Josh and men like him, women as well, of course, um, are serious when they say semper reformanda. He says in another um, tweet, The need of the hour is a firm, unwavering commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture. Consider how many problems and controversies would be solved overnight if there was a true recovery of the sufficiency of God's word. End quote. Um, that's true. That's true. And he says things like that throughout his Twitter feed. There's always a lot of emphasis, by the way, on the word. What they're seldom heard in Reformation framework is the emphasis of the Spirit, which is shocking to me. Now, I'm not a wild-eyed Pentecostal. I, I'm I'm not <laughs> I'm not charismatic. I, I'm not uh, I'm not secretly touting uh, some charismatic view here. I, I come from a Pentecostal background, but I understand the weaknesses and the uh, the um, extremes of some of um, people, many people in that system, and, and I renounce it. I don't want anything to do with it. So I understand the importance of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. That's one of the reasons I do these broadcasts, because I, I insist upon that. And the traditions of the elders, the traditions of men are, are always opposed to the sufficiency of Scripture. So once again, I hope Josh means this. I hope he really means that, that, uh, uh, that he holds to a sufficiency of God's Word. I know, let me just give you an example. I know a lot of churches who claim to be Bible-based churches. And they would agree wholeheartedly with Josh. They would say, oh, yes, yes, we believe in the sufficiency of God's word. But then they go about teaching a lot of doctrines that you simply can't find in God's word. Chief among them is tithing. Because they teach God's word as sufficient, but they teach it outside of its own context. And they do that in order to be able to 
impose things like tithing upon you. 10% of your gross income. Instead of new covenant cheerful giving on a regular basis based upon what you can afford and not what you don't have, it's a mandatory tithe. And some may will even teach that if you if you don't tithe, you're you're placing yourself under the curse of Malachi three, eight through twelve. Or they'll t- tell you that you have to keep Sunday as the Sabbath, and if you don't rest and study God's word and pray all day on Sunday, that somehow, you are violating the moral law of God. And if you're really a Christian, you wouldn't do that. They say that in one breath, and the other breath they'll say, oh, yeah, but the sufficiency of God's word. So I I think what I'm encouraging you to do is it's okay for you. If you're tired and if you've grown weary of these swelling words of eloquence by certain church leaders who talk big talks and use slogans and Reformation uh, principles and and um, but but you're you're discerning that this something's just not right here. It's because something's not right here. What I hope is that anybody who uses this term "sefer semper reformanda" will, in fact, really be interested. And I hope this for you too. Really be interested. And returning not just to the scripture. I mean, the Mormons have a Bible. The Jehovah Witnesses have a Bible. And 90% of it is scripture. 10% of it is pure garbage. But, I mean, there there is never black and white. The devil always traffics in half-truths. The devil will always come to you with a Bible in his hand. What the, be- what the devil will never be able to do is come to you in the, in the power and the uh, gentleness and the kindness and the fruit of the Spirit of God. So what, what's, what's really lacking in the church today is not the lack of Bibles or the lack of attention to reading the Bible, even in many cases, even though most Christians, I must say, again, with all kindness and affection, don't know how to read their Bible. And that's a tragedy, because they're not being taught. It's not their fault. You have to be taught. If we had pastors instead of hucksters, we would be taught how to read the Bible. So the fact that most Christians don't know how to read the Bible and they may want to, they may try to, is, is a witness to the fact that we are, uh, most of our churches are being cared for in, by hirelings, thieves and robbers, hucksters, instead of and genuine pastors. So, how many problems and controversies would be solved overnight if there was a true recovery of the sufficiency of God's word? I would have to add to that, within the context of God's word, the covenantal and eschatological context of God's word, 
without imposing a theological system upon God's word and understanding that God's word does not. Boy, I want to shout this from the housetops. And I hope when I'm finished, you will too. God's word does not exist independently of the Holy Spirit. What's really needed, what's really lacking in the evangelical world today is the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, I'm not secretly trying to commend people to um, begin to get Pentecostal on us here. I personally believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still available to the church today, but I don't, um, I, I don't emphasize that as much as you might hear in other circles. But what I do emphasize is the fact that, again, the, the Word of God does not exist independently of the Spirit. In the Spirit-Word union, Spirit, the Spirit, is in primacy. Because without the Spirit, there would be no Word. The Word of God, we all agree, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just written by good men sharing their spiritual experiences, as the liberals tell us. No, it was, it was written by men as they were moved by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit breathes into life the Scripture. So without the Holy Spirit, there is no word. So we, we really ought not ever speak much of the Word of God apart from the speaking also of the Spirit that inspires it, that reveals it to us, that illuminates it to us, that guides us. When Jesus was instructing his disciples at the upper room, hours before his suffering, he promised them not that they would have 75 translations of the Bible available to them one day. He didn't promise them that they would even own a Bible one day, and therefore they would be secure, since most of them would be writing much of the Bible. What he promised them is that the Holy Spirit would come, the Spirit of Truth, and would take up residence within him, them, and guide them into all truth. Now, let me close by saying, we are very blessed today that we have so many good translations of the Bible. And we have such incredible access. I mean, you don't have to be wealthy to own a Bible. You can, you can go down to a thrift store and look on their shelves and probably for a dollar pick up a good translation of the Bible. may not be a premium Bible. may not come in calfskin and have nice ribbons and gold trim and all that comes with it. But it's a Bible, and you can read it. So we have 
we are so blessed to have so many good translations of the scripture. And I love the scripture. But I love the scripture, not because I'm so strong in character and, a, and such a, a good man. I love the scripture because I love the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. And he gives me the gift of his word. The word that he inspired. I hope you're hearing me here. There's a good book out called Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit? And it's not written by Pentecostals. It's written by um, Dan Wallace and um, James Sawyer. Um, Dan being a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And it's a series of essays by others as well that is a call to return to an experiential and existential relationship with the work of the Spirit in our lives. Part of the reason the Reformation um, petered out was because it became simply an academ academia. It became a, a scholastic uh, work instead of the power of the Spirit moving in people's lives through the Word. Listen, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the change agent. Without Pentecost, the cross and the resurrection would have never been applied. We need all of those. We're not binatarians. We're not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. We are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to be truly semper reformanda, I would suggest that we add to our five solas in the evangelical world the solas of um, sola fide, sola gratia, excuse me, grace, sola fide, sola Christus, sola scriptura, and sola Deo gloria. We have the sixth one being sola spiritus, the spirit alone. We can't even, we, we are in Christ because of the work of the Spirit. We are in Christ because the Spirit moved upon us and regenerated us and imparted to us the gift of faith and opened our eyes as we heard the gospel to the glories and the beauty of Jesus Christ and we placed our faith in him. We can't begin to live the Christian life without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I'm just encouraging us to consider what it means in our time to be semper reformanda, to be always reforming. And I want to leave you with this thought that we need to reclaim the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our teaching of the Word. The reason the Charismatics and many of my Pentecostal brothers and sisters are so far out in left field, are so far drifted from the dock. I mean, if you look at television and radio and some of the books that get written and, and even Charisma magazine, I mean, these people have lost all touch with reality. <laughs> I 
I mean, the Kenneth Copelands and uh, and and those, Robert Morris and those of the world, the, these people, these people have have, have left the dock, and they're afloat out there in a sea of crazy. And the reason is, is because they don't have they have no mooring to the scriptures. They have no paradigm. They have no contextual regard for the authority of scripture. Theirs is a complete um, emotionalism, subjectivism, and they're doing it all in the name of the spirit, which is borders on blasphemy. On the other hand, many of my conservative brothers and sisters in the evangelical world are very committed to the authority and sufficiency of God's word, as they should be, as I am. But they have almost gone into a place of bibliolatry, where they we've replaced, they've substituted the ability to um, read and study the Bible. They've substituted that for the uh, power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I'm simply calling you back as a Christian to a, a, a renewed awareness and dependence upon the spirit of truth in the power of his ministry to understand what it really means to be a Christian. The, the new covenant under which we all live as Christians is the new covenant of the spirit. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He, he was very clear that he said that he is a minister of the new covenant. He made a distinction between him and his opponents, saying that um, he has made us competent, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the new covenant itself is the new covenant of the Spirit. It is not the new covenant of the Bible. I know that sounds almost blasphemous for some of you. If you could meet my wife and talk with her for more than five minutes, you'd understand how much I love the Bible. She often comments that there's throughout our house, you just really have to reach from wherever you're sitting and you'll be able to touch a Bible. <laughs> I have a whole collection of Bibles upstairs in my office. So this is not about dismissing or diminishing the Bible in any sense. It's about putting the Bible back within its proper context, and that is the work as being the work of the Spirit. And it's ultimately the Spirit upon whom we rely to illuminate our hearts and minds to the Scripture so that we are transformed. The Spirit is the change agent and the Scripture is the means by which the Spirit transforms us and conforms us into the image of Christ. And to the degree that you and I are being conformed into the image of Christ, we are indeed always reforming. May the Lord strengthen you. May the Lord comfort you. May the Lord 
fill you with his presence daily. Amen.